1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: So that's something I've learned about myself as a writer. If I'm not engaged, if I'm not curious, if I'm not laughing at myself, or getting hyped up about it, then, you know, it's not going to work.
0: Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, Disha Filio's book of deliciously vibrant and rebellious short stories about sex and black women navigating social pressures, won the prestigious Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction in 2021, and was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. But please bear with us for the unusually lengthy preamble in this interview because what I love about Disha's writing journey is that she did so much other stuff before she even thought about writing. I won't tell you all of it here, but it was only really when she quit her more high-flying job and began teaching the creative processes of writing as an English teacher that Deesha began to learn those creative processes herself. She's now 50, and her debut, that award-winning book Church Ladies, which was initially roundly rejected by mainstream publishers, was published in the UK last year. It's now being turned into an HBO show. Deesha and I talk about how her mum's life and death affected her writing, about learning to write as an adult, and about trying again and again to write the novel that she kept on not getting quite right. I so enjoyed this interview, and I really hope you do too. Here's Deesha.
1: You know, I I grew up with women who were inside of the church and outside of the church. Outside of the church, um, those women included my mother and my grandmother who raised me. And, but they sent me to church from as early as I can remember, even though they didn't go to church themselves. Why and did so, they do that? well, for the longest time, I didn't know. Um, I, and I remember being about eight, and I asked my grandmother once, and she said, you know, when I get myself together, when I get right, I'll go to church. And I could tell she didn't want to talk about it. So I didn't press. But even at a young age, I I had this idea that church was supposed to be the place where you went to get yourself together, where you went to get right, whatever, you know, that meant for her. And then as I got older, it was so, it should have been obvious, but it didn't really fully gel for me until a couple of years ago when I was starting interviews about the book. And people asked me this question very often. And the light bulb went off. Both my mother and my grandmother had children and they were not married. And so I'm, and they, they both passed away, so I can't ask for confirmation of this, but I firmly believe they felt unwelcome at church. But interestingly, um, you know, and part of my stories, there's a lot of the, about the gender double standards of the church, my grandfather his family, they were, you know, literal pillars of the church. They were the bricklayers who built the church that I went to first as a child. And then they were leaders within the church. He still was welcome at church. You know, he still went to church. He went on to marry a woman who later became a a pastor as well. So, you know, my grandmother didn't make her children by herself and yet, you know, (laughs) she, she didn't feel welcome There and then, my mother, who not only was unmarried when she had me, but she was a teenager when she had me, um, she didn't feel welcome at church either. And so, they did not attend church until I was probably just out of college.
0: Obviously, that's something that sort of dawned on you as you grew older. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what the experience of actually going to church was like as a kid? I mean, do you obviously. The picture one builds up reading the book isn't a particularly yeah. good one. But I wonder if you have any fond memories of that time also, or whether you yeah. were always thinking.
1: It was always fond, um, in the sense that, you know, my friends were there and you know, things like singing in the choir. Um, I loved all the pomp and seeing women, you know, the women dressed up, you know, and I was so fascinated and curious by about church women. Um, It wasn't until I got older and began to develop and became a teenager and hormones, then it started to get a little shaky. Like, wait a minute, you know, all these things that are pleasurable, you know, and our bodies and all these amazing things that are happening, all that's going to get me sent to hell. (laughs) <laughs> you know, according to the church, right? Yeah. So it seemed like everything that was good and fun, those were the things that were going to get you sent to hell. And then this kind of chastity and this, you know, holiness and chaste, you know, way of being. That's what you needed to be. That's who you needed to be in order to stay in God's favor. I couldn't figure out how I was going to reconcile that, you know, because I was a human being with human desires. So I got curious about the women in the church. How did they reconcile that? And that was the beginning of my thinking about their secrets, you know, did they secretly have sex, even though they weren't married? Um, you know, did they masturbate? Did they like sex? You know, mm. things I would never ask them of course. Um, but I just was trying to figure out, you know, I'm looking at them to see what my options are here. You know, I don't want to go to hell, but I also want to wear pants, <laughs> you know, cause there were some churches that I went to where, you know, women couldn't preach. Women weren't supposed to wear pants, you know, those kinds of things.
0: Just clarifying for British audiences that we're talking about trousers in the UK and not and not underwear. <laughs> <That was yours. laughs> so I read an interview with you that began as a girl in Jackson, Florida, Deesha Filio imagined the sex lives of the grown black women around her. And I thought that was a funny way of putting it, like this little girl thinking of sex in church. Is that right? Were you really this little girl thinking about that or did that come later?
1: No, I was very precocious and far too aware of sex at a young age. Uh, I don't know that I, I, I've i written about this. I don't think I've ever talked about it in an interview, but um, my next door neighbor had a huge um, bookshelf in her home. And I loved the library more than anything. And so going to her house was like having a library, you know, right next door. And she had books like Portnoy's Complaint and The Happy Hooker. <laughs> and so like, I learned some stuff way too young, you know. Um, <laughs> and so I was, you know, I had some awareness of these things even before, you know, I was an adolescent or anything like that. So I knew what sex was. I knew about people having sex. And I it was what I knew of sex was like the antithesis of what I saw at church, you know, that there was. You know, you couldn't pursue pleasure or sexual pleasure or be a sexual being and be in God's favor. You know, there was this, you know, everything was sin. The flesh was weak. You know, the flesh, you know, things, sins of the flesh. And so early on, there was this, that was the one of the first binaries that I was introduced to that I think, you know, does a disservice to us as, as full human beings, which is you can be this or that you know, there's going to be heaven or hell, you know, good or evil, Madonna, whore, you know, eventually, you know, it, it blossoms. But that binary from the very beginning, new right of things I was reading about and I had to sneak, I had to hide those things because I knew they weren't good things, that they were bad things. And it's so dangerous, especially for girls to think of sex is bad or your body is bad. It just opens the door for a lot of exploitation and a lot of dysfunction and and things like that. And a lot of harm. If we can't talk about our bodies, then we can't say like when we are having problems or, you know, if somebody is touching us inappropriately, you know, it's just setting us up for so much harm. And thankfully I was, you know, spared a lot of that, but the die was cast early on that, you know, anything sexual, you had to sneak, you had to hide, you had to keep secrets.
0: (laughs) Were you writing any of this down as a young person?
1: No, I was not interested in writing when I was younger. Um, I always got good grades for my writing and I always did well in school but I didn't think of writing um and, and being a storyteller as like an aspiration. That wasn't until I was a stay at home mom with a young child that it dawned yes. up, this is what I could could be doing.
0: I think it's really good for people listening to this podcast to hear that because obviously I do have a lot of guests who say, Well, of course I was scribbling down these stories when I was little. Yeah. And and actually personally I I wasn't. And um, mm-hmm. And and I, I always think it's really reassuring to hear that yeah. that can come later and that it doesn't have to Absolutely. have, you know, started when you were five and have those sort of Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours before you're 20 yeah. or something. <laughs> um, so then you you went to Yale and read Economics, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a far cry from what you're doing now. What was that like?
1: I was a first-generation college student. You know, no one could really prepare me for... What college was in terms of a place where I could discover, where I had options, where I could figure things out. I thought I had to know going in what I wanted to be, meaning professional, you know, that, that your profession was going to be the thing that defined you. And so you needed to know what that was. And then you needed to pick a major that was going to allow you to be that that's how narrow <laughs> my perspective was unfortunately and at and, and a liberal arts school like the whole concept of liberal arts was lost on me that you know i could discover what it was that i wanted to learn and to go to college for the purposes of learning and discovery and not this very practical vocational you know kind of approach to it and and you know kudos to anybody who just like knew they wanted to be a doctor or whatever and they went down that path I thought I had very limited choices. Um, I did not enjoy math or science. Um, I was good at math, not good at science. Um, So none of the science feels, you know, not a doctor, engineer, none of that. Um, I thought, what about being a lawyer? And no, I don't think I want to do that. And I really didn't know what else there was. And I was like, well, I guess I could be a business person, which is the broadest (laughs) category in the world, right? What does that even mean? Um, But I knew that at the end of four years, I had to have a job and a career and I had to be able to make money and be self-sufficient. Um, so business it was going to be and Yale doesn't have an undergraduate business major the closest thing as I'm looking in the catalog was oh yeah economics that's like business right it's not it's so not Um, (laughs) so I chose that major being really practical I did the minimum coursework required to declare that major and then I took you know, FM studies, and I took history classes, and I took women's studies classes, things I couldn't have majored in, <laughs> you know. But those are the things that I was passionate about, and that I was curious about, and that was, were exciting to me. Um, so that, that's how I ended up with an economics degree that I've never used.
0: Well, you, you sort of used it next, didn't you, because you became a management consultant. <laughs> tell us a little and bit about that. You.
1: The people who were hired with me also from Yale, University of Pennsylvania and uh, Princeton, they were like East Asian studies majors, psychology majors. I could have majored in anything and still gotten the same job Um, because what they were looking for with the management consulting um, was they, they were looking for critical thinkers and they were looking for people who were intelligent. That's why they recruited only those three schools. Um, You know, I also considered for five seconds being an investment banker because at the uh, um, at the time, lots of investment banks were recruiting at Yale and you didn't have to have a degree in finance or economics or anything like that to be an investment banker. You just had to be a fast learner and you had to be willing to work really hard and you had to be smart. And that's why they, you know, all across majors, you didn't have to be an econ major to get recruited in investment bank um so yeah it you know it, it was my first job out of college it probably helped it looked good on paper that I had an econ degree but I was miserable I hated that job I absolutely hated it that's why I lasted nine months
0: <laughs> nine months and and I read somewhere that you cried every day is that right <laughs> <laughs> so unhappy oh but you're laughing so much looking back on it now <laughs> is it just because I can it laugh seems- now
1: Yeah. You know, I laugh now because, you know, it's something I want my daughters to understand, which is you can try things out and, and, and not everything's going to be a good fit and that you can, you can pivot, you know, a pivot. It may feel like the end of the world because nobody wants to feel rudderless. You know, you want to feel like I'm stable. I have this career and it's solid and it's, uh, it pays well. And that's, as growing up, because I grew up poor, it was like I just wanted stability. But then there was this other foreign concept satisfaction. You know, I was not satisfied. I wasn't personally motivated or interested in the work. And so, this idea that you can have money and still not be satisfied my mind was blown, like it was totally blown. And so, you know, my mother couldn't understand it when I was like, you know, I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to go and get my master's degree and I'm going to teach. It's a master's degree in teaching for elementary school. And she said, so you'll teach for a couple of years and then be a principal, right? Because in my mother's mind, it's like, you know, you don't go to Yale to become a teacher, you know, which is a kind of reductionist sort of view. I don't share that view. I think it's, you know, being a teacher is, is, is a admirable thing. And it's a high aspiration. It should be, you know, students deserve teachers who are awesome, um, educators.
0: And so at this stage, writing was still not on your radar.
1: No, but what I, but when I was teaching fifth grade, they taught of the writing process, the writing workshop, even in elementary school, this idea that writing is more than grammar. Even in this would have been in the mid 90s, they were teaching writing as process. They were teaching writing, and that's I'm teaching it to fifth graders, and that was my introduction to writing as a process, um, and not writing as grammar and handwriting and you know this very stilted thing. And so I was really learning alongside my students this idea that you know your ideas are valuable that you can make a story out of anything and that you write a draft and then you go back and you make it beautiful you know um wow you were teaching
0: new. you were teaching about the idea of drafting to kids yes that's so wonderful yes. I don't think we do that here um, <laughs> my kids are too little for me to know but I mean wow that's um yeah that's something
1: yeah so I wasn't thinking about myself as a writer at that time, but that was my introduction to the idea that writing is something that you can have ownership over, you know, and I was trying to impart that to my students. Like, yes, I'm the teacher telling you, you know, this week we're gonna do persuasive writing and this week we're gonna do a different type, but ultimately, you know, you are a source of great ideas. Um, And the way they come out of your head and onto the paper the first time, you know, that's not the, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. And then how can you use metaphor? You know, how can you use dialogue? How, you know, are you being suspenseful? And You know, all of the different techniques and all of that stuff and and all of the process of exploring all of that started, you know, as I was teaching other people.
0: I find this like, this adult exposure to what writing actually is incredibly mm. inspiring and moving actually like this idea that you sort of had no idea it was even there and then it like happened to you as you were teaching it it's wonderful yes. yes um and so then you were teaching and then am I right in thinking that you stopped teaching when you had your children yes and then when you had your children you that's when you gave writing a go um yeah tell me a little bit about how that actually happened I'm honestly interested in you know did you just open your computer one day and think I'll write a story? Like what happened? So
1: I'm trying to think of the early stuff, you know, everything starts with my mom, (laughs) you know? And so initially the first writing I wanted to do was about how difficult my relationship with my mother was. Um, And also I was journaling a lot because I was still involved in the church. Um, I had done all of the good girl things. I got married before I had children. I married a man, Um, you know, I checked all the boxes and, you know, just like with my job, you mean I'm not happy? That didn't guarantee my happiness. Why am I still dissatisfied? And my mother relationship with my mother had always been complicated and still complicated. And then I became a mother and, you know, there was a lot of tension between my mother and I around how I was parenting. And I was just generally miserable, just really, really miserable. And so initially I was writing some of it in essay form, but just for myself. But when I thought about writing for publication, because I started meeting other women writers online who were writing for publication, I thought, oh, I could never write about my mother could never say these things out loud, you know. Um, so that dis- dissatisfaction and that sort of um, the longing and the, you know, why am I not happy? I gave that to characters because that felt safer. And so um, my oldest daughter, my daughters are five years apart. So when my oldest, it was just her, and she was maybe two, and she never napped. And I was just constantly overwhelmed because it was uh, I was stay at home mom, so we were always together. And um, I remember complaining to another mom. I was like, "She's so intense. I don't, I don't understand." And the other mom said, "Have you met yourself?" <laughs> <It was really laughs> so we have these, you know, two intense people: an intense mother and an intense child. And we were a lot. And so um, the the writing was my break from her. And I would just take like 30 minutes a day and I would close up in the study and she would scream and she would cry because she literally could not bear to be away from me. And so I'd be crying too and typing. And so that's kind of how it started. It was just like something to do with myself and my brain that didn't involve taking care of her. That's something that was just for me.
0: Yeah. And, and did it feel good and, and I by the sounds of what you just described I think the answer is yes but the reason I ask that is because a lot of people who write don't always feel good you know they feel self-doubt even as they're writing um, mm-hmm. it sounds like that wasn't the case for you because it was so much you know you're you carving yeah, out yeah, time you know- for
1: yourself It did. I think it felt good because it was a respite. Um, And certainly in the beginning, I wasn't thinking I was admiring people who were publishing, but I hadn't thought about like, hmm, I should, you know, publish this stuff. It was this is my time and I can go into this other world and this other character for 30 minutes, you know, and just be away and, and, and be a part. And then. As I decided, okay, I might want to try and get my work published. I don't know that I i probably, you know, was it ignorance is bliss. I don't think I knew enough to to have doubts because I was convinced that my writing was like terrific. Like, <laughs> you know, just like, I, you know, and, and I just like, I want to be published in the Atlantic and the sun. That was another magazine that I was absolutely obsessed with and all of these other journals that I had started to read. And I really just thought, you know, this this is great. And I would just submit my work and get rejected. And then I started asking people, how do you get published? How do you, you know, I didn't know how it worked. And so I was truly naive enough to think that something that I banged out and, you know, was feeling really good about, yes, The Atlantic.
0: (laughs) And so what was the first piece that you got published? Do you remember?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, so, so first, was no, it was not fiction. I was trying to get published anywhere that I could. So I signed up for a lot of, back then they were like listservs where you could see writing opportunities. And there was one uh, that I was signed up and it had an announcement for columnists for Literary Mama, which is a site that's still going strong. Um, And this would have been 2003. And so it wasn't fiction, but I was, you know, again, just publish me anywhere, anywhere. (laughs) And so all you had to do was send in a sample column. What would your column be about? It had to be some aspect of motherhood. So I looked at the columns that they had and They had a few other mothers of color, but they didn't have any black mothers and they didn't have any mothers who were adoptive parents because my second child is adopted and we had just adopted her. So that was very new and very big part of our lives at that time. So I proposed a column that was about being an adoptive mother. And so I wrote a sample column that became my first column for them and I sent it and that was the first publication that was digital see there were a couple of different first and then I think the very first print publication would have been maybe 2004 no it was not 2004 because my mom had died so it would have been sometime after 2005 like 2005 2006 the Washington Post I wrote some book reviews for them they called it a roundup where they give you five books on a theme and you And they were all parenting books. So um, an editor, Jabari Asim from the Post hits my literary mama column. I have no idea how, and reached out and and gave me that opportunity.
0: How great. How did that feel seeing your words in print for the first time?
1: Oh my gosh. I over the moon and (laughs) now you know, in print, national. You know, I really just you know wish my mother and my grandmother could could see it. And then it was okay, so those were book reviews. And then I, I think the next thing was Wonder Time magazine, uh, which is a now defunct Disney magazine, parenting magazine that lasted only a couple of years. It crashed when the market crashed in 2008, but I think I published three or four pieces with them, all personal essays. Um, and while all of this was like super validating and super exciting, it wasn't fiction. You know the fiction publication and and i felt like the fiction was the 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 stuff that i was most passionate about that i I had fallen into column writing and personal essay writing you know kind of you know incidentally but it wasn't the thing that i was pursuing and so i believe the first what i considered the first sort of real fiction publication was in a journal called pms poetry memoir stories uh it was a journal for women writers and they had a special edition. It was the Black Women's Issue, and I was published alongside like heavyweights: Elizabeth Alexander, Tiari Jones, Nikki Giovanni, Lucille Clifton, like all of these amazing writers who were well established, and me. And <laughs> you know, I I was blown away. And it was in print, so that was important. So that was fiction print. Um, but I had had two digital publications. Um, prior to that, of these short stories that, you know, I think they're probably on the, if you do the, you know, what is it the um, it's a way back machine you could probably find them, but um, these publications are now defunct, but there was a publication. It was a, I forget the name of it, but there was a woman and she just ran her own little literary journal. Nobody was making any money, but she was just publishing stories. And so she published a story um I can't remember. There were two stories. It was either a story called haircut or a story called Ellison. She published one. The other one story was published by um, a journal called the new Yenzer. So Yen's is uh, in Pittsburgh. Instead of saying y'all, like we say in the South, they say Yen's. And okay. so a Yenzer is like a Pittsburgher, a native Pittsburgher, or Yenzer. And so the new Yenzer was a, a literary journal and they published one of my stories, but um, those were digital. They're now defunct. So I cite my story, Bomani Jones in PMS journal in 2008. as like my first fiction publication.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, obviously church ladies is in many ways about women being told mm-hmm. to, as you described earlier, dampen down their desires and they're made to feel a lot of shame and keep secrets. Obviously this is not the same thing, but I wondered if, particularly because of the subject matter, a lot of personal mm-hmm. stuff that you were writing about, whether you fe- felt any sense of shame or secrecy writing about mm-hmm. these things, um, either fiction or personal essays, yeah. because a lot of them touch on some of the things that you've talked about from your own life as well. Yeah, I think
1: there's always, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. sounds weird to say. What, once my mother died, it's. I think all of us are like, I don't want my mom to see this, you know? So there's no more of that, you know? I okay. So that kind of went away. That's part of it. I think the other part is my early attempts at writing. I tried to shy away from the sex. And even though those were the things that I was really thinking about and everything you see me writing now is what I've always wanted to write. But early on, I didn't think that I could. And I don't know if it was so much that I was thinking about my mother possibly, but i also was still very much in the church and so i thought that you know i could write about women who were you know vaguely dissatisfied about their lives but the in the first novel that i started writing she was so matronly the main character was so matronly and she was you know vaguely unhappy in her life and in her marriage and it were all of these issues but none of them were sexual like i was intentionally staying away because I just, you know, I, I, I I just propriety, you know, that's who I still was. Um, even though, you know, I was curious about many things and and really interested in sex and, but yet I wouldn't write about it. Mm. Then I went a little further in the next, my next attempt at writing a novel and this woman has an affair. And then it's like a cautionary tale because get discovered and it's horrible and you know then she's trying to like save her marriage and she's happy but the future is uncertain you know so it's like yes i wrote about sex but the woman immediately has consequences you know yeah okay and um and then i didn't even really get into like it was a book about an affair and it took like 20 chapters for them to even get in bed like i was really (laughs) really like grappling (laughs)
0: i'm just gonna i'm just going to jump in at this point and add that um hopefully listeners if they haven't already will go and read church ladies after this but there is a lot of sex in it i mean there's it is a lot of sex some yeah. of it is very sexy sex. Some of it is very tender, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful sex. It's a whole array of sex, but there is a lot of sex. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, so, I mean, you, you worked that out in the end.
1: Yeah, so, so, so there's a pivot.
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how you got there. So you attempted mm-hmm. these novels. Yeah. I know you, so, you had an agent at some point because you'd written a nonfiction book with your mm-hmm. ex-husband, right? Yeah.
1: So I think part of the pivot was... Um, At the same time that my mom died, um, I was getting divorced and I also left the church. So I think all of that was very freeing um, in the sense that I really didn't have to think about anybody else but myself and what I wanted to do. And I felt like I had lived the first 35 years of my life trying to not upset other people Um, and try to squeeze myself into a box that was Christianity that did not fit me. Um, So that was part of it. And then also with my mom's death, it wasn't just, oh, okay, I don't have to worry about my mom seeing this. It was also that my mother had lived what seemed to me a very small life, and not me judging her, saying it's small, but small for her, meaning... I think she wanted a lot more out of life than she got. And she also died young. She was 52 when she died of breast cancer. And I remembered feeling like, you know, obviously it was devastated that she was dying, devastated for myself, devastated for her, but also devastated at all the things she didn't get to do. And that it felt like she was always taking care of me and other people and wanting to please other people, but my goodness, what did she want, you know? Mm -hmm. And my grandmother also died that same year and it was the same thing. She lived a longer life, but um, the same thing. They were super sacrificial. It was all of this servitude to others. They did not prioritize themselves at all. And I felt like enough, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not going to live like that. I don't want to die and, you know, be on my deathbed. Like, gosh, I wish I had, you know, or I should have. So I thought I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And if there's something keeping me from doing it, it's not going to be me, you know, and it's not going to be fear about other people being uncomfortable or other people, you know, being judgmental. Um, or anything like that Um, I could live with other people's judgment I could live with other people's disapproval but I could not live smaller less than afraid shrinking hiding Mm -hmm. I just refused to do it
0: and so so sorry when your mother died um you had already attempted a novel but then you stopped doing that and then you would you tried a a different kind or is that when you started writing the short stories or how did how did everything come
1: about there so let's see she died in 2005 at that point I had attempted two novels before that
0: okay how um, how far in how far in had you got into those novels the
1: first one I only got you know maybe five chapters in and that's the one with a very matronly main character who you know (laughs) there was no sex um, but then the second novel, The Cautionary Tale, I wrote the whole thing. Uh, okay. It wasn't very good, um, but I did finish it. But it still wasn't the novel that I wanted to write, you know. And then I, in 2007, I started another novel, um, which is the novel that I really hope to finish in the next year. I'm still working on it. I've been working okay. on it all along. And I made good progress. I wrote the beginning, I wrote the middle, I got, I'm sorry, I wrote the beginning and the end, I got stuck on the middle. And my agent, um, which you noted was my agent for the co-parenting book. She was, you know, she's been asking me about that novel forever. And then I was also writing these short stories on the side and it was her idea to take a break from the novel which I was already doing anyway, um, and really focus on the (laughs) short stories. Um, but yeah, that third attempt at the novel, even that one, I was hedging. It, the, the novel um, still to this day isn't as um, sexy as the short story, not because I'm holding back or anything like that. It's just, it's not the story. Um, but even that novel, I was still playing it kind of safe in ways that I wasn't playing it safe in the short story. OK, so my agent was like, let's see, explore this. But and I think part of this with short stories, one, I didn't know I was writing. They were like, there, it seemed like so, so little was at stake. And I wasn't thinking church ladies sex. I was just remembering, you know, there was some nostalgia in there and there were some interesting themes and in, that, are, you know, interesting dynamics and situations and what ifs like that's where these those stories came from. But after I'd written a couple, my agent called them church lady stories. And the themes we identified were these are stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church. you know. And her question was, can you get intentional maybe about writing more stories like this for a collection? And that felt a lot more doable than finishing this novel that I was just absolutely stuck on. Um, in retrospect now, I know I was stuck because I wasn't allowing that character to be as free and messy as I allow my other characters in the short stories to be. And even, you know, again, it's not a, a a super sexy novel and it's not meant to be, but the, in the revision in the novel, as I'm working on it now, I'm allowing her to be somebody I'm not. I'm allowing her to have values that aren't mine and to do things that I would never do. But I think she was a little too close to the best, Initially, but I'm giving her the same freedom that I'm giving that I've given the characters in the short stories. She's just using her freedom a little differently than than they are. But I think that that's that was what I learned once I finished the Church Ladies collection is that I really had to free my novel main character up to be Mm -hmm. who she was going to be and not being who I am and what I would do because that's not you know, the stuff of a novel.
0: What I really like about the short stories is, um, I mean, I like lots of things about it, but I love how a lot of the stories have different formats and you have a lot of different types of characters, even though you have the themes uh, running strongly throughout the themes you've just described. Yeah. They are all quite different. You know, some are epistolary, some are in the second person, some are sort of pieces of advice. And it really feels to the reader like you had a lot of fun writing them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that really comes across.
1: Yeah. And I think it makes a huge difference because I was not having fun writing my novel. Hence, it could not get written. So that's something I've learned about myself as a writer. If I'm not engaged, if I'm not curious, if I'm not laughing at myself, or getting hyped up about it, then you know it's not going to work. It's not going to work.
0: So, so what happened then when you when you sent the book on submission? Um, mm-hmm. Because it wasn't it wasn't snapped up,
1: was it? No, no. So all of the major presses passed on it. Um, all the the big publishers, all the mid tier publishers, <laughs> everybody said no, except West Virginia University Press.
0: And how many, how many publishers had you sent it out to?
1: I don't know. Um, my agent did send me a list, and I want to say there were maybe 12 to 15 publishers. I, I'm not okay. sure. I can't remember.
0: Do you remember what they were saying in their rejections? Were they formal rejections, or were they what were they saying?
1: Sometimes there was not a reason, but when there was a reason um, – you know, sometimes it was the very vague, not a good fit, whatever that means. But the specific, there were a couple that were very specific that were, this doesn't feel complete. Um, this need, these stories need too much work. Um, Peach Cobbler in particular, I, I love this. You know, nobody liked that mother character and how, how could she be this way? This just doesn't, you know, nobody... you know, this mother doesn't act this way, or they wanted me to explain why the mother acted the way she did. I got the the same kind of feedback from when I was trying to publish that story just by itself, Um, you know, in literature that People don't like miss mothers, I guess. Yeah, yeah. People... For
0: listeners, Peach Cobbler is sort of the main, one of the longest stories in the book, and it, yeah, it has a mother who's who's pretty awful to her daughter, and makes the peach cobbler for her married boyfriend essentially every uh, every week, and doesn't doesn't ever let the daughter have any. And it's really, it's like a really, really sad situation where she just longs for the peach cobbler and never gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there are lots of other ways in which the mother is, is not very pleasant as well. Mm-hmm. And did you feel, I know you've spoken about this in the past that that, you know, not a good fit was mm-hmm. quite a loaded thing because the stories are very much about black culture. Publishing is very white. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, you know, that That's always the possibility that not a good fit means we don't think we can sell this and we don't think we can sell this to white people <laughs> is the unspoken, you know, piece. But I think the success of the book shows that lots of people will read books about a very specific group of people because good storytelling is good storytelling. And you can take the specific lives of Black women and tell their very specific stories. And there's still connection points and points of resonance for people who are not Black women. Um, most of us were raised with mothers. So the mother-daughter dynamics are there. Um, many of us experience you know, church dogma and fundamentalism. Um, most of us have been raised in binaries, you know, gender binaries, the you know Madonna where all of us have experienced being asked to be one thing or the other when so often we can be both or in between mm-hmm. or neither none of the above. Um, most of us have had experiences with grandmothers. A lot of people tell me that they connected with the fondness of for grandmothers and You know, being at your grandmother's house, um, a lot of us like food, there's a lot of food in the book. So, you know, so they. So I think sometimes this idea of who the market is and what people will read um, and from what I've been told about publishing is rarely do publishers want to be the first. To do anything, you know, Um, even though obviously my book isn't the first book about Black women or anything like that. But for people who are on trends and things like that, you know, other than big names, selling a book that's just about Black women probably seemed very, very risky. And not just a book, but short stories, which everybody will tell you. Nobody wants to publish short stories. Nobody. Mm-hmm. And so often what you'll hear is is there a novel to go with it? <laughs> you know, and then you get the get the, the the two book deal.
0: How how long were those rejections coming in for before you did get your deal? And what did that feel like for you?
1: It was just a couple of months. And I, I think a couple of months is quite a
0: long time when you're in submission. <laughs> I mean it's it's not it's not, but when you're on submission for the first time, yeah. as I have also been through, it's quite an yeah. excruciating time potentially, even though arguably it's a short amount of time
1: but the co-parenting book took a lot longer and that I think that was the difference was that I had already had the experience of we went like my agent does I guess it's called tears where you aim for these publishers and you aim for these publishers and she went through a couple of tears with us with the co-parenting book and nobody was interested and then kind of on a Lark, she was like, you know, there's this one publisher. They never publish anyone to self-help imprint. They don't publish anybody who's not a clinician that doesn't have letters behind their name. And here we are writing a co-parenting help book. And it was just me and my ex. Neither of us were not lawyers. We're not therapists. We're not anything, uh, you know, making us experts other than, you know, we had built this brand and had a blog and a, and a, a blog talk radio show. And she thought, she didn't pitch because of what she knew about them, but she thought, why not? I'll give it a shot because I had been we gotten all of these many rejections. Those rejections were probably a couple of dozen rejections if if memory serves, and it took many months it I don't know, yeah, it wasn't a year, but it took much longer and they were interested. they thought, yeah, a co-parenting book written by co-parents that's a great idea and so we, that's how we got that deal. So at the time the rejections were coming in for church ladies, it was still early in the process. And so, you know, I, I, I didn't expect anything else. And my agent had told me short story collections are a hard sell. And so I was prepared that it would take a while that it may not happen at all. I was also prepared that even if I got a book deal, they were going to try and like, make me add white people, mm-hmm. <laughs> in which case I had already resolved that I was not going to spend any advance I got because I would give them back advance because I was not going white people to okay. my book. that's so was-
0: interesting. So, So you yeah. would not have taken a deal on those terms or you would have given the deal Mm -hmm. back.
1: Nope. And that's the thing. And I love to be edited. I I mean, I had a great experience in the editorial process with um, the editor at West Virginia University. Editors love me. I love them because I take critique well. And I, you know, in all of the years that I've been writing, I think I've encountered maybe two editors who weren't great. Other than that, I've had fantastic editing experiences. I trust editors, you know, the whole nine. But that's one thing I wasn't going to waver on um that these were black stories um again it didn't mean other people couldn't read them but I knew you know I was writing specifically about these people and I was thinking about black women as I was writing so I knew that with all of that there was a chance that I was going to have to publish this collection myself and I was fully prepared to do that
0: okay but then you did then it did get picked up by the small university press And Mm -hmm. then, of course, it went on to win a ton of awards. It won Penn Faulkner, $20,000 Story Prize, the LA Times Award for First Fiction. was a finalist for the National Book Award. I mean, that's a hell of a list for for a debut collection. What did that feel like? I mean, particularly the first one, which I think was the National Book Award. Yes. And then they kind of pile up. How did that feel to begin with? And how did it feel as it went on?
1: It was surreal because you know to go from I'm going to publish this book myself if I have to to just is a finalist for the National Book of, you know there's a there's a that's a long leap but it was all happening early in the pandemic every in it that colored everything I, I was having the best time of my professional life isolated at home alone most of the time. Mm-hmm. So, great award ceremony, doing all sorts of press and then hoping that my kids and I can stay safe. So it was a lot. It was it was a lot. and I never wanted to minimize how terrific and how affirming and and just how joyous it was to have my work celebrated. And because of the recognition, more people were reading the book and then more people were connecting with me to say how much um, the stories meant to them and 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 you know their personal the personal resonance with the, of the stories. And you know so that all felt great, but then it also felt overwhelming at a time when we were also vulnerable and sad and lonely and scared, you know all mm-hmm. of these things. so, I felt overwhelmed most of the time. So like the good overwhelm, but also like the sad overwhelm because there was so much uncertainty. I had so many zoom parties, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it was like, so I was, you know, my therapist was like, you will celebrate, you know, you will celebrate <laughs> and I celebrated and not just wins, but celebrate nomination, celebrate everything. So we did a lot of celebrating, but, most of the time I couldn't touch my friends. I couldn't, you know, my loved ones. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, I was cooking for people and leaving things on their step and they were leaving things on my step. It was just the book brought us together, you know and, and, and helped me feel less alone at a very lonely time and a very scary time. So it was great. Um, for all the reasons that this kind of success is great and then on top of that it was like a lifeline during a a difficult time.
0: Did the success affect your writing in any way? Did it were you able to write throughout that period or did you know did these rising expectations um, create self-doubt in any way? How how did it affect you
1: or did it I was quite prolific over the last couple of years very um you know and i think it was because writing rewriting where things could continue safely and so i would take a lot of writing workshops with writers that i admire i was also teaching a lot of writing workshops so that was kind of strange too because you know people think i don't know why this is but they think if you are you have a successful book that you would never take a writing workshop and i'm like why not i want to keep learning i want to keep you know try, i want to try new things and so it was a time of experimentation too so you know maurice carlos ruffin I was offering a satire workshop. I'm there, you know, or Rian Amokar Scott. Or It was Rian's satire workshop that I took. Maurice offered a workshop. You know, If there was so many writers in the pandemic started doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just signing up for everything. And so I was writing satire for the first time. I took um, a workshop on Black women's horror writing. I wrote a satirical horror story. Um, I took a workshop. <laughs> You yeah, know, I love S- that. You know, that kind of thing. Essay Co- um, Cosby offered a workshop on violence, writing violence. And I have some violence in my work, and I'm, you know, just constantly learning. And mm-hmm. so I would get motivated by these workshops and then turn around and, and start writing. And so the biggest change is that after Church Lee's came out, I write faster. Um, because there are stories in the collection, not all of them, but many of them—were written over the course of years. Either I wrote the whole thing and then came back to it later, or I just jotted a few notes and then came back to it, you know, later. Um, some of them were written after I signed the contract for the book, but half the book was—you know—five of the the nine stories were, you know, were already done when when I got the book deal, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think that I was just a slow writer. Um, but I think part of that was, um, the fact that I was always doing so many other things, Mm. you know, um, while, as I was writing and fiction was just sort of, oh, you know, when I have time, you know, I can kind of get to it. Um, but suddenly I do, (laughs) you know, and so I have a lot more time to write. And so I can, you know, finish a draft in a much shorter period of time. I also started writing more flash fiction.
0: You mentioned earlier in this podcast, I think when you were talking about being a management consultant, you said, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, I'd learned that, you know, my professional, um, my profession would um, define me. That would Mm -hmm. be my identity. Mm -hmm. Now that you have a a profession that you enjoy, do you Mm -hmm. feel that it
1: defines you? I think people define me that way. I still kind of hold out as writing is a big part of who I am. But it's not all it is not my primary identity. Neither is motherhood, though, you know, and so I want to have all of those parts of me kind of working together. um, But never limiting myself to either one.
0: Yeah. You're staying in John Grisham's house. Um, yes. <laughs> doing the, tell, me, tell me a little bit about
1: that. How is it? Oh, my gosh. So I'm in Oxford, Mississippi. After living in Pittsburgh for 25 years, this is a return to the South for me. I grew up in the South, um, Jacksonville, Florida. And I've been here a little under a month. And um, I'm, the, the heat is miserable. But, you know, <laughs> welcome to the South. Um, the mosquitoes have attacked me but I've met great people. I've had great food. I'm living in this uh, wonderful house that sits on 77 acres and there's a pond out there that I haven't gone fishing in yet, but I'm going, I teach, but my my teaching load here is um, minimal. The purpose of the residency is for me to write my next book. And so um, I still haven't unpacked because as soon as I got here, I started writing. I took advantage of the fact that, um, I wasn't teaching, hadn't started teaching yet. And my youngest daughter wasn't here yet. And so it was just me and my dog. And, um, and so I got a lot of writing done. And so now it's like, well, now I should, you know, I got to start teaching. I probably should finish unpacking these boxes. (laughs) (laughs) Like I packed just enough (laughs) unpack just enough, you know, to live. But, um, but I was very, very productive here. The space to write is literal because you know it's a big house and um, and a lot of land and green space. It's beautiful, um, but also the mental space to write—just the freedom where I don't have to think about money or you know. I mean that that that's the gift of this residency. Is mm. it's a gift of time um, and money to write your next.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others and please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks and see you next time.